Listener supported. WNYC Studios. I'm Rebecca Ibarra, host of NPR and WNYC's Consider This, in for Tanzina Vega, and you're listening to The Takeaway. With Senate Bill 202, Georgia will take another step toward ensuring our elections are secure, accessible, and fair. SB 202 will allow for a hostile takeover of local boards of elections if the Georgia legislature, filled with politicians, doesn't like the outcome of an election. This is really a threat to our democracy, number one. And number two, we need to call it what it is. It's racist. I can, you know, truthfully look in the camera and and ask my African-American friends and other African-Americans in Georgia to simply find out what's in the bill versus just the blank statement of this is Jim Crow or, you know, this is voter suppression or this is racist because it is not. Our governor is signing a bill that affects all Georgians and you're going to arrest an elected representative. It's anti-democratic. It's un-American. They're trying to make it harder for people to vote rather than making it easier. Last week, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp signed into law Senate Bill 202, a new election bill that Democrats and civil rights advocates have criticized for placing major restrictions on the rights of Georgia voters, particularly voters of color. The new legislation comes in the wake of Democratic victories in Georgia's presidential and Senate elections over the past year. Former President Donald Trump and a number of his Republican allies claimed, without evidence, that voter fraud played a role in President Joe Biden's victory in the state, even after multiple recounts confirmed his win. Some of the central pieces of the new law include restrictions on ballot dropbox locations, a photo ID requirement for absentee ballots, and even a ban on handing out food and water to voters waiting in line. Data from Georgia Public Broadcasting and ProPublica on Georgia's June 2020 primary election found that after 7 p.m., voters at majority black polling places had to wait roughly eight times as long to vote as voters at majority white locations. Over the past week, several prominent business leaders have spoken out against the Georgia voting law, but so far, Governor Kemp and his allies are standing behind it. And with the GOP in control of Georgia's state legislature, Democratic lawmakers have limited options to push back. For more, we're joined now by Georgia State Representative Deborah Baysmore, who represents Georgia's 63rd District. She's also the chief deputy whip for the Democratic Caucus. Thanks for being here, Representative Baysmore. Hello, and how are you today? Well, thank you so much. So what was your immediate reaction to the passage of this voting rights bill in Georgia? I was heartbroken. I w- it was, we were dismayed. We were upset um, in disbelief that legislators who are elected by constituents in the state of Georgia would now take us back years and years and that we would have to fight for the right to freely vote without restrictions. Hmm. Are there particular pieces of the legislation that you're more most concerned about? So first and foremost, 
the way that this committee was formed was by the Republicans, of course, because they are in the majority. Mm. They nicely gave us four seats for Democrats to sit with them, which they were ignored and dismissed during the whole process. Uh, a lot of the meetings, a lot of the information was hidden from them. Just like you saw, everything was done behind closed doors and in secret. And that is the most disturbing part because once that, what they considered the bill came to the floor, then they knew they had the numbers to get it passed, regardless of how anyone else felt, regardless of the fact that they did not open it up to the public, their constituents, the citizens of Georgia. They were not transparent. There was no integrity with what they did. Representative, how will this bill impact voters in your district? And and for our listeners outside of Georgia, could you tell us what the demographic makeup of your district looks like? So thank you for that question, because I do represent a large portion of Fulton County, mm-hmm. Fayette County, and Clayton County. And as you know, Fulton and Clayton County were highlighted in this most contentious election, the past election. And we are proud to say that we were responsible to send Joe Biden, our president, Joe Biden, to D.C. Hmm. We are excited to say that we sent two, not one, but two senators to Congress. And we're excited about that. So there is an attack, especially on those two counties. And we are we have already started working hard to combat what they have put in place. We have been working with Fair Fight. You know, Stacey Abrams has established that organization. We've mm-hmm. been working with ACLU. We have been working with a number of different organizations and we have been meeting with them over the months because we knew this was gonna happen. And we knew what we needed to do was to make sure we got the questions, the appropriate questions on the table and asked in committee and on the floor of the house so that when we know that this is going to court, that we have the evidence. And we can say that this was not done correctly and is not, we can fight the legitimacy of it. Now, this bill does expand early voting in most counties, according to Georgia Public Broadcasting. Uh, Do you view that provision as positive? So I'm not understanding how it expands early voting. But in the bill, we had drop boxes. So the drop boxes would allow anyone to vote any time because And I utilized that. Mm. I was, because we're so busy, I went to my nearest drop box, seven o'clock at night, eight o'clock at night, early in the morning, and I just dropped it off. And it was so convenient. Not only that, we are still in a pandemic. People forget we are still in a pandemic. People Mm. are not at ease. They don't want to come out and stand 
close to individuals. They don't want to have to stand in lines for six to eight hours as those in the Southern region of Georgia had to do in my district, especially. They had to stand there, but they did it because they knew how important it was. And so that's what we're gonna do again, because we found out that absentee ballots was the best way, the safest way to keep our constituents and our citizens safe. That's why we used it overwhelmingly. Then we find out, we know that the Republicans have used this method for decades and it's worked for them. Hmm. But now they want us not to be able to use it because they're fearful that they won't be elected again. Now, Governor Brian Kemp and other Georgia Republicans say that the bill is meant to make Georgia's elections more secure. So what is your response to their stance on this? So I'm kind of concerned about that since it was said over and over and over again, proving that there was no fraud. There was not a problem with the election. I mean, hand count, recount, and I mean, with the GBI assistance. So I'm not sure why we are trying to fix something that's not broken. And that's because they have to play to their base. With the person that sat in that seat, number 45, put out this lie and a lot of his followers believe it. And so those are still some of their constituents. So they have had to do something. And you're talking about the discredited claims of alleged voter fraud. So the state government in Georgia is controlled by Republicans. As a member of the minority party, yes. is there anything you and your colleagues can actually do to stop, you know, voter suppression from happening in your state? So as, as I stated, we have um, joined with several different organizations outside. We've already started, like I said, with lawsuits. We've already started to inform our constituents to make a plan. Make a plan early now. Don't wait until next year. Make a plan to vote. How are you gonna vote? Where are you gonna vote? Make sure you get the accurate information because if you don't, even if you're in your county and you're not at your location, the right location because you got inaccurate information, your vote will not be counted. So we are educating from this day forward and letting our constituents know and empowering them with the information. What would you like to see corporations based in Georgia do in response to the new voting restrictions? I know there have been called for boycotts and things like that. Yes, there have been. And so um, at first, you know, uh, there was radio silence. Then they came out and made a statement that um, some of them made statements that were not acceptable. And now we had uh, one of the major organizations and which was Delta, and they came out and they said they were against portions of the bill. As a result, the Republicans then took the jet fuel tax away from them, had a bill, mm-hmm. and it passed in the House. And that was a backlash. 
Do you imagine this frustration that you're feeling and other Democrats are feeling will motivate voters to the polls with greater urgency than before? I think that is going to be the outcome. I believe once you upset a group of people, once you tell a group of people that they can't do something, you have now given them the energy and the purpose to do exactly what you are trying to stop them from doing. People are motivated at that point when you take away their rights and they are ready to get out and vote and do exactly the opposite. One thing um, that the Republicans continue to say is read the bill. One thing I want to tell them is to take their knee off of our necks. Please take your knee off of our necks because we will be victorious. Deborah Bazemore is state representative for Georgia's 63rd district. Representative Bazemore, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Critics have referred to the bill as Jim Crow 2.0, and advocacy groups have filed lawsuits requesting that the law be overturned for violating the Voting Rights Act. Lawmakers in Georgia are part of a trend nationally where Republican legislators across the country have introduced more than 250 bills that aim to restrict voting. To walk us through the nuts and bolts of this bill and what it could mean for future elections in Georgia, we're joined by Andra Gillespie, an associate professor of political science at Emory University, and Stephen Fowler, a politics reporter with Georgia Public Broadcasting. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Stephen, how does Georgia's new election law change the process of voting? Well, the better question almost might be what doesn't get changed in this. It's a 98 page law that touches every aspect of Georgia's elections from absentee voter applications to how poll workers can serve to the post-election counting process. And it makes sweeping changes really in two big categories. One is election administration and how county officials run things and how the state run things. And then two, some more voter facing things dealing with absentee voting and early voting. And basically it changes uh, the perception of Georgia's elections too, because Republicans say that there needs to be more integrity with the system and Democrats and voting rights groups say many of these changes are unnecessary. Hmm. Andra, among many things, the law reduces access to drop boxes. It shortens the length between an election and a runoff election. It reduces the duration of the absentee voting window. It prohibits sending out unsolicited absentee ballots. So talk to me about the motivation for introducing and signing this law. Well, the motivation, uh, you know, depends on um, your perspective. So (laughs) the sponsors of the bill say that they are trying to restore confidence in the election where there are a significant number um, of voters who do believe uh, that uh, something was amiss in the 2020 election cycle. But we need to get to the source of why they think that. Um, there wasn't widespread voter fraud. Uh, there were uh, audits and recounts, uh, and uh, they showed uh, that there wasn't widespread voter fraud. Uh, there have been investigations of, of, of ballots that have, have demonstrated that, you know, any discrepancies were minor and wouldn't have changed the outcome of the election. 
And so and most of the people who believe uh, that there was something fraudulent or amiss in this election happened to be members of the party of the former president of the United States who routinely said that the election was stolen from him um, and hasn't recanted that particular story. So there is this larger question of, yes, there is lack of public confidence in the election, but it's lack of confidence that is based on a repeated uh, spread of a lie. Um, and so there's that part of it. But then there are parts of SB 202 that do address challenges uh, that local election boards encountered because of the pandemic and then do make some administrative changes that um, people don't necessarily find objectionable, particularly people who are administering elections. Stephen, what's the reaction been from Georgia voters and residents? Well, the backlash to the law has been really building since before it was signed. Uh, This final version of the bill is pared down from some of the suggestions that Republican lawmakers proposed, uh, some as extreme as ending automatic voter registration and ending no excuse absentee voting that ultimately didn't make it. But, um, you know, Governor Brian Kemp signed the law about an hour after it passed out of the legislature in a closed door session. There's been a lot of backlash to that. There's backlash to... um, the fact that, you know, a lot of these changes have been made and people feel like the legislative process wasn't as transparent as maybe some of the other bills or changing laws just, you know, a couple weeks really after Georgia's most recent election that saw Democrats take control of the U.S. Senate. And there's a lot of opposition from Democrats in particular who have said that these are unnecessary changes that make it unnecessarily harder for people of color to vote. And on the other side of the aisle, you have Republicans um, touting a couple sections of this law saying, why are you attacking things that make things better? We're trying to secure the ballot. And, you know, in a way, it's kind of galvanized Republican voters to have a little bit more faith in Georgia's election system than they did when many stayed home for the runoff. Andra, Georgia is a state where during past elections, there have been long lines of people waiting to vote in precincts with black and brown populations. Uh, SB 202 criminalizes giving food or drinks to voters waiting in line. What's going on here? Well, there's a lot that's going on here. There are other provisions in SB 202 that um, are supposed to make lines more efficient. So, for instance, in places where you have lines, uh, waits of an hour or more, uh, those precincts are supposed to be split up into smaller precincts in subsequent elections to try to reduce those uh, those wait times to make it more efficient. On the other hand, there are provisions in the bill that say that in non-statewide elections, so in local races, uh, counties have flexibility about about the number of uh, machines that they actually have to uh, put up uh, because they're expecting low uh, low turnout. And so I think the question would be whether or not you would end up with long lines in a local race in a small county. Uh, you know, we don't know. We would have to wait and see what would happen with that. Um, you know, in terms of uh, providing food, I mean, there are a couple of things to think about. Uh, you know, there are federal provisions uh, that say that you can't give people things in exchange for their vote. And that's usually been used to discourage people from giving people freebies for voting and food kind of often gets counted in that. Mm-hmm. So there've been major corporations like Ben and Jerry's, for instance, that, you know, have uh, have gotten in trouble for trying to give free ice cream cones, for instance, to people who, um, 
who have their I voted sticker when they when they go. So they so if Ben and Jerry's wants to do that promotion, they have to give free ice cream to everybody as opposed to whether or not you uh, have a voting sticker. Mm. Um, and uh, I know in part because I, I, I got into it sort of uh, with some commentary on a local station with folks uh, from Fair Fight that, you know, groups like Fair Fight, you know, were standing outside of polling precincts in thoroughfares and offering to anybody who passed by food and beverages to help encourage people to stand in line um, so that people didn't get discouraged and go home if, in fact, they encountered a long line. And so this looks targeted towards that type of activity under the guise of these people are, are electioneering. So under the new provisions, poll workers can provide food and beverages uh, to people who are standing in line. And if the third party groups are standing 150 feet away from the precinct location and 25 feet away from the voter line, it would still be permissible. But it's just the idea that this is is being brought up and it it just looks like a a lack of of, of empathy for for people, right? Because this is a serious issue. If Mm. it's you know, 645 and you're and you've been in line for four hours and you're really hungry um, and your blood sugar is low, you might get out of line and then not be able to get back in in time to be able to vote by the 7 p.m. deadline. And Stephen, what role did the fact that Republicans in Georgia lost both Senate seats to Democrats in a runoff earlier this year play in the formation of this law? It definitely played a big role, Rebecca, and I think it's because uh, you saw Uh, more people vote in Georgia than ever before on both sides of the aisle. You Mm -hmm. saw more people vote absentee than ever before, which is a system that was uh, passed into law by Republicans, but not really used widespread before the pandemic. And with the absentee voting method that's outside of a polling place in your own home, there were a lot more questions and skepticism about that voting method and who used it that Republicans used to push false claims of fraud. And so you had the president saying that absentee ballots need to be overhauled. You had top Republican leaders in Georgia saying that the absentee voting method need to be overhauled. The Republican Party of Georgia put out a platform of different voting law changes that they needed to make. And so there were some administrative things that were probably going to be changed regardless of the outcome. But the fact that we had that outcome really gave a lot more cover to more sweeping changes than we might have seen otherwise. And under the guise of, you know, we need to have some more discussions about ballot security and other things that nobody implicitly said, the Republicans lost this election, so now we need to change the laws to make us win again. But it definitely is an undercurrent through all of the legislation. Andra, there are several lawsuits that have been filed that hope to overturn the new law. What are the plaintiffs arguing? The basic claims um, are going to be that this is a a violation of the Voting Rights Act, Um, that um, these some of these activities are are surgically targeted towards people of color um, and that it would make it harder for them to vote. It would give a disparate impact and it might depress minority turnout um, more so than it would depress white turnout. And that that in and of itself uh, would uh, violate the Voting Rights Act. And are you hearing anything about the chances that these lawsuits will be able to overturn the law? 
Um, I mean, because they're just being filed, uh, you know, I think it's too early to say how strong, uh, you know, a case they have or what the judicial responses is necessarily going to be to it. I will say that it wasn't surprising at all when you have legislation that's this controversial. Uh, mm. You know, you almost expect that uh, you're going to see lawyers uh, uh, filing cases um, almost immediately. And so we'll see uh, what parts of this law get enjoined, if any parts of the law get enjoined uh, by by these legal challenges. Stephen, Georgia's Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger is one of the defendants named in the lawsuit. How did he go from defending the integrity of elections in Georgia to supporting a bill that was motivated by well, false claims of widespread voter fraud? Well, you know, as the Secretary of State, uh, he is Georgia's chief election official and is responsible for implementing these laws, whether or not he agrees with all of them. And there are some parts of this bill that he definitely does not support. One of them removes him as chair of the state election board, which Mm -hmm. is the body that makes rules like the drop boxes that were added into the pandemic. And they hear cases of alleged election law violations. (laughs) He doesn't support removing himself from that. He's been very outspoken Mm -hmm. about that. But um, there are other things that, as a Republican election official, he does support and endorse, uh, like some of the changes to absentee voting. But really, you know, with it being such a big law that makes so many changes, uh, you ultimately can't separate the good from the bad. And so Brad Raffensperger, as secretary of state, is now being sued in his official capacity because he is ultimately the one that's going to have to carry out these law changes, both the ones that he likes and the ones that he doesn't. Andra, Georgia is part of a trend nationally of Republican lawmakers attempting to change the voting process in light of the most recent elections. Do you think the Georgia law will push that trend forward nationally? Um, well, I mean, it looks like it. we're looking at trends. So Texas, uh, the Texas State Senate, uh, you know, has just mm-hmm. passed provisions that would ban drop boxes, for instance. So, um, you know, I think we're just going to be looking as we're seeing state legislatures sometimes winding down for the season that a lot of these controversial bills, if they've made their way through the legislative process, might be coming to the end of, you know, being voted on in the next chamber. And then their governors are deciding whether or not they're going to sign them into law. But, I mean, Georgia's not isolated. It's not in a vacuum. So uh, many types of proposals that, you know, might seek to, to tweak the absentee ballot process, um, uh, you know, have been going around and other types of, of provisions and tweaks to election laws have certainly been uh, proposed in state legislatures around the country. Um, and while, you know, our focus is on the ones that uh, make voting more difficult uh, in the estimation of voting rights advocates, there are also bills uh, that uh, were being proposed in some states to seek to counter that and to actually expand voting rights access. But if we just look at the number of bills that were being uh, proposed that would restrict uh, voting access, uh, one, they're cause for concern and they're very numerous. Stephen, uh, boycotts against Georgia-based companies have been floated as a response to the new voting measures. Uh, Recently, the CEOs of companies including Coca-Cola and Delta Airlines have said they find the law to be unacceptable. Could their comments have any sway with lawmakers? I think they have, but maybe not in the ways that they intended. Georgia's legislative session ended Wednesday night. And after Delta CEO Ed Bastian issued another statement saying that Georgia's voting law was unacceptable, the Republican controlled House 
passed a bill that would end a tax break for jet fuel that Delta enjoys that Mm -hmm. ultimately didn't pass the Senate, but it sent a message and a shot across the bow. Um, You have seen companies weigh in from Georgia and outside of Georgia about this bill, but most of them have lacked actual substantive criticism of the law, with the exception of Microsoft, who spelled out in detail some provisions they had concerns with. But a lot of the CEOs and companies that have spoken out have caught flack from both Democrats and Republicans. Republicans saying that it was hypocritical for the companies to say things when Georgia's voting laws are better than some other states. And Democrats saying, where were you when this was making its way through the legislative process? So Mm. uh, I don't know if you'll see too much happen on the boycott front because really these companies have put themselves in a no-win position. Andra, a number of black religious leaders have also voiced their disdain for the law, including one of the founders of Souls to the Polls, a get out the vote movement that black churches participate in. Does the new law target church based get out the vote efforts? Some of the initial proposals did, uh, um, and there were numbers, and uh, there were many laws that were uh, were were bills that were being introduced um, in the legislature. So there there, there were uh, original provisions that would have eliminated weekend voting. Um, ultimately, they didn't make it through. But so what gets codified in terms of early voting is um, it increases the number of Saturdays uh, that are required, um, and it makes at least one Sunday optional. Stephen can correct me if I'm wrong about that. Mm-hmm. So what I suspect will happen is is in Metro Atlanta, where Stephen and I live, and we actually don't live that far from each other, right? I don't expect to see any change in voting and 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 my access to Sunday voting because I expect that DeKalb County, where we live, is going to take the option of of, of offering as many Sunday voting days as possible. But mm-hmm. the question is, what's going to happen in some of these smaller counties, and whether or not the smaller counties opt not to go beyond the bare minimum requirement of having that one Sunday. I think is up for question the same way I think that if we start to look at local races uh, and we see counties, uh, you know, offering fewer machines to polling places under the guise of these are low turnout elections. That's where I think sort of, you know, the front lines of the impact of this law are going to be felt. Andra Gillespie is an associate professor of political science at Emory University. And Stephen Fowler is a politics reporter with Georgia Public Broadcasting. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex of bugs. (laughs) Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rebecca Ibarra in for Tanzina Vega, and you're listening to The Takeaway. We leave Georgia now for Texas, where early on Thursday morning, the Texas State Senate passed a bill that would make it harder to vote by limiting early voting, as well as the number of voting machines. 
The legislation was debated for seven hours and ended up passing 18 to 13 along party lines. The legislation now heads to the Texas House of Representatives for consideration. Democrats and voting advocates are concerned that the legislation will suppress voters, especially in places like Harris County that had record turnout during the 2020 election. But Texas State Senator Brian Hughes, one of the authors of the bill, says the legislation is meant to preserve election integrity. And he joins us now. Senator Hughes, welcome to The Takeaway. Thank you for having me. So you are one of the sponsors of Senate Bill 7. What is included in this bill? Senate Bill 7 has some common sense reforms to make the system work better, to make elections better. A number of provisions make it easier to vote and also make it hard to cheat. And that's what the bill is about, looking at our system continuously improving. Every session, the legislature looks at ways to make the system work better. And that's what Senate Bill 7 is about. So I I noticed that you say make it easier to vote, but it does restrict voting in some cases, right? It it makes it illegal for local election officials to solicit or send out vote by mail applications to voters, even the ones that qualify. It bans drive through voting, which actually increased some voting in the last election. It also limits early voting hours. So could, could you say how it makes it easier to vote? I'd be glad to. For one thing, The law clarifies that if you are at the polling place and in line, when the polls close, even though you're outside waiting in line, you still get to vote. You can't be kept out for that reason. The bill also provides that when you cast your ballot by mail, a tracking system is going to be in place where that you, only you, can track your own ballot online. Many folks tell us they're not sure if their ballot's been received. They don't know whether they should try to vote in person. And so this tracking system is going to be allow the voter to make sure their vote is on the way. Also, a paper backup for electronic voting. Uh, Most counties in Texas now have gone to this, but uh, thousands of Texans still vote on electronic systems that do not have a paper backup. So there's no way to do a recount, no way to verify. Now, you mentioned voting machines as we were going in, and I want to clarify that. Uh, The uh, bill does not limit voting machines or reduce the number of voting machines. It does require that polling places and voting machines be distributed evenly based on eligible voters. So there's no limitation on the number. It does make sure that if uh, one particular party is controlling a county government, that party doesn't cheat by putting more of the machines to favor their party to disfavor the opposition. And that applies to the biggest counties in Texas, counties with a million people or more. Some of those are Republican. Some of those are Democrat. But it makes sure that that local government in a big urban area is not using their power to stack the deck, to put the machines in places that favor their party and disfavor the other party. And again, the bill says it's based on population of eligible voters, not voter turnout, not even registration, but eligible voters. It's the fairest possible method that could be used. Uh, As far as the security measures measures in the bill, 24-hour voting has never been done in Texas. Our election code doesn't provide for it. We had one county decide to do that in one election last year. And there was evidence, there was testimony that there were not poll watchers available. It was even difficult to get election workers in some of those areas for 24-hour voting. Now, what the bill does do is standardize, and it requires some counties to increase their hours. But every county will now have to provide at least 12 hours between 6 a.m. and 9 p.m. So it's about standardizing the process and making sure that we have security in place so that everybody knows their vote's going to count and going to be counted accurately. Why was this bill debated for so many hours? What 
Why was this bill so controversial and, and what elements of it did people disagree on? There was a great attempt to pull this bill into a national debate. And you're familiar with it. I'm sure you see it at the national level. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of questions about uh, bills in other states and what happened in the 2020 election in other states and other precincts. And that's not what Senate Bill 7 is about. And so it's about elections in Texas. And so it was debated for a long time. Many people had questions. And if you go back and, and watch, I think you'll find many of the questions were about other states and other elections. The Senate Bill 7 is clear. It's about making sure Texas elections run smoothly, run fairly. And we talked a lot about participation because if folks lose faith in the process, if they don't believe their vote is going to be counted, counted accurately, reported accurately, they're not going to turn out. So uh, that's that's why the debate took so long. Uh, there are also technical aspects to the bill. It makes sure that those voting machines are checked for accuracy. It also requires that once the votes are counted, they're tabulated fairly and in a way that's open for everyone to see. Not how people voted, not their private ballot, but that the numbers are tabulated correctly and reported correctly. So uh, the election process involves details, and so those had to be debated. But I, I will say part of the reason it took so long is because there was an attempt to drag us into some national debate that has nothing to do with Senate Bill 7 in Texas. Um, so maybe sticking to Texas, um, in, in response to this bill, Harris County Judge Lena Hidalgo said SB7 and related legislation is a poll tax disguised as election integrity. It's clearly a direct response to the massive success we had in Harris County last year in terms of accessible and secure elections. Um, Gilberto Hinojosa, chairman of the Texas Democratic Party, has said Senate Bill 7 is the worst voter suppression we've seen since Jim Crow and a full-on assault on the voting rights of Texans with disabilities and black and Latino voters. What is your response to those comments? I'm disappointed that folks would make irresponsible and false generalizations like that. We could look at specific provisions in this bill. That suggestion of of some kind of a poll tax, there is nothing in this bill that adds any kind of a cost, any kind of an expense to someone casting their vote. That is completely false. And as far as this uh, other generalization, again, People want to talk about different states and want to talk about elections across the country and what happened there. This bill is about elections in Texas. And every criticism I've heard, every criticism I've heard has been about some vague campaign in other states. But when we look at the provisions of this bill, uh, just take a look. You'll find their common sense reforms that apply to everyone across the board. Let's talk about Harris County again for a second, which includes Houston. Um, Analysis by Harris County's election office with data from the Texas Civil Rights Project shows that black and Hispanic voters are more likely to vote than white voters at drive through sites and during extended hours. So, Senator, why try to eliminate drive through voting? Drive through voting is not provided for in the Texas election code, nor in many states election codes. That's because the safest way, the most secure way to vote is in person in the polling place. That's how Texans and Americans have voted for a long time. Because in the polling place, we have protections in place. There are poll watchers. There's a process to make sure the law is followed, to make sure folks have a secret ballot that's secure. Now, of course, we make exceptions. We have mail ballots for people who are 65 or over, who are disabled, or who will be out of the county during the election period. We also provide curbside voting, and that's an important accommodation Folks with disabilities who cannot get out of the car and 
come into the polling place, curbside voting is provided for them. That's been the law for a long time. Everyone knows the law. It works. What we saw Harris County do was ignore the law and try to create a new system. And I think we would agree that the laws are passed by the legislature. The people of Texas act through the legislature. Those laws are established and local governments follow those laws. And there was also testimony that in drive-through voting in Harris County, our largest county, as you mentioned, uh, there was real concern about security, about multiple people in cars having voting machines passed around, no secret ballots, no poll watchers. There have been even reports that the votes weren't counted accurately. There's a criminal complaint being investigated right now <laughs> that votes were not even counted accurately in that process. So uh, I understand uh, there have been some sound bites about how wonderful this was. The evidence shows it was against the law and it was not a fair, safe, accurate process that gave everyone secret ballot. We should clarify that poll watchers, they, they aren't public watchdogs, but they are um, inherently partisan figures. Um, reporting by the Texas Tribune, for example, has found that poll watchers actually did have access to observe drive through and 24 hour voting. And also in December, a multi-agency bipartisan task force in Harris County, the Harris County Election Security Task Force, said they did not find any evidence of election fraud in the November election, despite widespread allegations of fraud from from individuals, mostly in, in your party, Senator. So critics will... Forgive me. I would, only, I would only say there's a pending complaint based on sworn testimony right now in Harris County about inaccuracies in the numbers that were reported. But as far as poll watchers go, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but as far as poll watchers go, remember that poll watchers are there from both political parties, from multiple candidates. So each party, Republican, Democrat, each candidate has an incentive to have poll watchers who are prepared, who know what they're doing, and who can be the eyes and the ears of the public. And I think we agree that poll watchers are important. Otherwise, how does anyone else know what's going on what the election workers are doing at any polling place, whether it's in a Republican area, a Democrat area, poll watchers really are the eyes and ears of the public. And I don't think that's ever been put in question before. Now, critics, Senator, will say that Republicans are pushing this legislation because turnout was so high that Democrats were able to increase vote counts in urban and suburban areas. And that ultimately threatens Republican control. What do you say to that? When I was in the legislature some years ago, when I was brand new, we had a big debate about voter ID, photo ID, asking folks to show a photo ID when they vote, like you have to to get on a plane, to get into a sporting event, common areas of life. Of course, we put in exceptions for folks who didn't have a driver's license, for folks who couldn't afford an official ID. We made those IDs free, and we were accused of trying to limit voter turnout. But what happened? After voter ID, our turnout improved dramatically and has continued to improve. Uh, Republicans and Democrats want a fair system in Texas. There's this big national debate, and and I understand that, and, and uh, people are going to ask about that. But if you look at this bill, the provisions of this bill, the common sense, straightforward, as we discussed in the at the beginning, this bill makes it easier to vote and harder to cheat. And that's that's fair for everyone. And you do say easier to vote, but according to a 2020 analysis published in the Election Law Journal, um, it's already harder to vote in Texas than any other state in the country. You know, it says Texas is a state with the most restrictive voting processes. So why add more restrictions to that, Senator? So I've heard the criticism of our voter ID. Of course, it's been upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court and turnout has increased since we added voter ID. And when I turn out, I mean percentage. I'm talking about raw numbers, percentages, turnouts increased. But again, a number of provisions of this bill 
like allowing people who are in line when the polls close, making sure they get to vote, making sure when you cast that mail ballot, even when you request the ballot, you can track and see where it is in the process. Make sure it made it paper back up so that when you vote on an electronic system, you can know there's a paper record to do a recount. Also making sure the machines work properly. A number of provisions of this bill make that process smoother and increase people's confidence. And as far as, as why make changes, the, test, the, com- the committee and the legislatures heard sworn testimony over the last couple of years, not only from Republicans, but from Democrats, from prosecutors who are Republican and Democrat, from election workers, Republican and Democrat, and from the attorney general's office. And they've told us, here's how people are cheating. Here's what we are finding when we investigate, when we prosecute. Here's how people are cheating. And so in response to that, like we do every other area of the law, we try to make improvements so that people can't cheat. And again, to clarify, there hasn't been any reported widespread election fraud, uh, just to be clear. Uh, Lastly, Senator, can you discuss? I, I, I don't know what widespread means, but how much fraud is enough? We want elections to be fair. Fraud is not okay. And uh, I hear people say there's not much or there's not too much. How much fraud is okay? We want our elections to be fair. Lastly, Senator, can you discuss the role places like the Heritage Action Fund have in drafting and and supporting legislation like this? Have they been involved or invested efforts in Texas? Uh, I know they've committed to at least $10 million so far to supporting what they call election integrity. I haven't heard from them. A couple of questions were asked about what groups we solicited information from. We didn't solicit information from anyone or help. Uh, Any group that reached out to us, we responded to. We worked with a number of disability rights groups uh, in the process of this bill. We worked with county election officials to ask questions and concerns they had. These are from across the state, from across the board. And then during the hearing, folks testified. Uh, Civil rights groups testified, disability rights groups Texans testified, volunteers, uh, government officials. We listened to that testimony. Uh, we made changes. I don't recall that group testifying uh, or hearing from them. Brian Hughes is a state senator from Texas representing the 1st District. Senator Hughes, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. For more on voting rights in Texas, we're joined now by Jane C. Tim, senior reporter covering voting rights and election policy for NBC News. Jane, welcome to the show. Hi there. So you were listening to our interview with Texas State Senator Brian Hughes that happened just before the break. Did anything in particular stand out to you? You know, I was surprised to hear him talking about eligible voters as a really common sense way to calculate where you put polling locations, because Mm -hmm. eligible voters isn't a number that really exists out there. You know, the census doesn't count voting age U.S. citizens who don't have a felony conviction or serving parole or, or probation in Texas. So that's why advocates say it's going to end up being counted based on registration or historical data. And they're really worried because past historical voting trends tend to favor more white voters in Texas, where fast changing uh, communities of color uh, are, have newer voters who don't have show up in the voting registration data mm. from maybe a few years ago. What should we make of the timing of this bill, of the fact that it happened overnight? 
You know, I've been asking a lot of people why this passes at 2.30 in the morning. Mm. Um, And advocates feel like it was really intentional to try and keep eyes off the process. Um, Late last night before I went to bed, I actually checked in to see what was happening in some of the House debates of other election restriction bills. And there was one still going around 9.20 last night. Um, It had been going all day. Every other committee had adjourned for the day, but this one's still going. Um, There's only so many hours you can watch this stuff, and it's not really on YouTube after. Once it's it's gone, it's gone. Um, So I, I think there's some thought that this isn't intentional to keep eyes off of it. We've heard a bit about this already, but can you tell us again what exactly would SB 7 do? You know, you talked about some of the early voting cuts, but some Mm -hmm. of the other big ones are that it empowers partisan poll watchers in a a much different way. Mm -hmm. So these are people who are appointed by local parties, and the bill says they can videotape people and and send that footage to the secretary of state if they think they're seeing something illegal. Um, And it's a crime to actually obstruct their view, this bill says. So this seems to me to be sort of a direct response to President Trump and how much he rallied and said, you know, his army of poll watchers would find the fraud and, and see the fraud in action and stop it. Um, and we should be clear, you know, fraud is incredibly profoundly rare. Someone mm-hmm. once described this to me that poll watching is like cataloging uh, planes coming in and you're waiting for a UFO. And for huh. the most part, you're not going to see the UFO. Republican lawmaker Brian Hughes just told us why he's supporting this legislation. Is that in line with what we're hearing from Republican lawmakers in Texas across the board? And you did mention the Trump administration. How much of this is tied to the rhetoric we heard from the Trump administration? You know, when I, I talked to Senator Hughes a couple of weeks ago, and he actually told me that he'd been wanting to do some of this legislation for a long time, but that the 2020 election had really uh, made people more interested in it. I think that the what President Trump said in his stolen election lie has really mobilized a base behind maybe what policies Republicans have been wanting to do for a long time. You know, voter fraud isn't a new thing. McCain was talking about fighting voter fraud years ago. Hmm. Uh, Advocates say it really dates back to the 2000 election, where people realized a couple thousand votes here and there can make all the difference in the world. Um, But what President Trump has said actually really has put just sort of gasoline on, on these embers um, and turned it into sort of this this national fight. Jane, who would be most impacted by the SB7 legislation and other efforts to change voting rules in Texas? You know, just about anybody who, who likes flexibility in how mm-hmm. they vote, it tends to be communities of color who are shift workers, first responders, people who can't vote at 10 a.m. on a Tuesday in November. Um, and I think that's actually a lot of people. But I think communities of color absolutely are being targeted. The disabled now have to sign a different form under this bill that would um, – so essentially, they have to say they know it's a felony to lie about their disability and their absentee ballots. Mm. Um, and it puts it puts restrictions on, on how officials and individuals can help a voter. There's one part of this bill that says if you are helping a voter, you now have to fill out a form explaining why that voter needed help and mm. sign it. Um, I've helped family members in the past vote, uh, close relatives. And whenever I had to sign something, that's where I got, you know, sort of a, a moment of pause of, wait, is this okay? You know, there's people, this makes people worry. It makes people maybe feel chilled out of the process. So Republicans are in full control of the state government in Texas, right? So does that mean their efforts will ultimately be successful? 
you know, they have trifecta control. They have the power to do it. But what we saw last night was actually really interesting to me. American Airlines and Michael Dell of Dell Technologies in Texas, these Texas corporate giants coming out in opposition to voting restrictions, similar to what we saw in Georgia, but that happened after the bill had been passed. They're getting Mm. involved now. And I think that corporate interests are incredibly powerful in Texas. And you could see this change, maybe what is in the final bills when they make it to the governor's desk, if they make it to the governor's desk. But Republicans have the power to do this. If they want to, they can push this through. Yeah. So as we've been saying, SB7 was passed in the Senate and Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick has called this bill a priority. So so then when does it head to the House? And then, you know, how likely is it to pass in the House? Yeah. So it goes into the committee process through the House. Um, the House is already considering their own very similar bill. They were doing that late last night, as I said, HB6. Mm-hmm. Um, but these bills can change a lot in the in the process and the amendments. So even if the number bill passes, it might look different when it gets through. And should we expect to see any legal challenges to SB7 or other changes to voter laws in Texas in the coming weeks and, and months? Oh, absolutely. I think these bills are primed to get lawsuits, particularly the eligible voters formula is very confusing. Um, and there's mm. going to be lawsuits that try and sort out the vagaries of these bills. And advocates say these bills seem so intentionally vague so that counties who don't want to go to court are just going to be as conservative as they can because they don't want to be punished. And a lot of these voting restrictions in SB7 and the ones being considered in the House with HB6 actually had criminal penalties to mm to election officials who make mistakes. And there isn't, in some cases, provisions that say you know you're making a mistake, not malicious mistakes. You know, elections can be confusing and people do make mistakes. It happens every year. And the idea that you could maybe face criminal penalties, there was one provision where uh, state employees could lose their job and their pension Hmm. over election mistakes. Um, Those are scary and, and chilling for people who are involved in the process. Jane, how does SB7 fit into the larger push for Republicans to restrict voting in the state following last year's election? You know, we've seen bills that look a lot like what we're seeing in Texas across the country. Uh, It's clear there's a national push. You know, that phrase that you just heard, easy to easy to vote and hard to cheat from Senator Hughes. Mm. I hear that all over the country. Um, from different lawmakers who are pushing bills like this. Uh, So I think what you're seeing is you're going to see lawsuits all over the country and that challenge these laws when they pass. Um, And you also see federal legislation that would stop a huge, vast majority of these restrictive bills with the For the People Act. And I think that's going to inform that congressional conversation over the filibuster um, because people realize that this is the one way you could stop all of these restrictions across the country instead of a state by state, committee by committee, legislature by legislature fight. Huh. And and in Texas, what other pieces of legislation on voting rights access are, are being proposed? HB6 is a similar bill, and that's working through the House right now. Then it would go to the Senate and they'd sort of flip. Um, but there's a there's actually 49 bills in Texas mm. that would restrict access for voting. They lead the nation in restrictive voting proposals. Um, but I think it's these omnibuses that are going to be the vehicle for whatever actually passes and, and comes out. Jane C. Tim is senior reporter covering voting rights and election policy for NBC News. Jane, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me.
And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for joining us today and throughout the week. Call us about anything at 877-8MY-TAKE. That's 877-869-8253. Or send us a tweet at The Takeaway. And a quick shout out to the wonderful team that makes the show work. Sham Sundra is our board op. Vince Fairchild is our broadcast engineer. Jay Cowett is our sound designer and director. Polly Irungu is our digital editor. Our line producers this week are Jackie Martin and Jose Olivares. Our producers are Ethan Oberbin, Meg Dalton, Patricia Yakov, Lydia McMullen-Laird. Amber Hall is our senior producer. David Gable is our executive assistant. And Lee Hill is our executive producer. You can follow me on social media at Rebe Ibarra C. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Rebecca Ibarra in for Tanzina Vega. And this is The Takeaway. <laughs>